going to ask Lachlan if he would come up and read our scriptures for the day of God. Once again, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12. Now, this is our boast. Our conscience testifies that we have conducted ourselves in the world, and especially in our, our relations with you, with integrity and godly sincerity. We have done so relying not on worldly wisdom, but on God's grace. For we do not write to you anything that you cannot read or understand. And I hope that you, as you have understood us in part, you will come to understand fully that you can boast of us just as we boast of you in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because I was confident of this, I wanted to visit you first so that you might benefit twice. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back, uh, back to you from Macedonia and then let you send me on my way to Judea. Was I fickle when I intended to do this? Or do I make my plans in a worldly manner so that in the same breath I say both yes, yes and no, no? But surely as God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, by me, Silas and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him it has always been yes. For no matter how many promises God has made, uh, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us and, he s and set his seal of ownership on us and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. I call God as my witness and stake my life on it, that it was in order to spare you that I did not return to Corinth, for that we lord it over your faith, but we, for not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, because it is by faith you stand firm. So I make up my mind, so I made up my mind that you would not, that I would not make another painful visit to you. For if I grieve you, who is left to make me glad but whom I have grieved? I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I would not be distressed by those who should have made me rejoice. I have confidence in all of you that you would share in my joy. For I wrote to you out of great distress and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. If anyone has caused grief, he has not so much grieved me as he has grieved all of you to some extent, not to put it too severely. The punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. Now instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. Another reason I wrote to you was to see 
if you would stand the test and be obedient in everything. Anyone you forgive, I also forgive. And what I have forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake. For in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. Now when I, now when I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ and found that the Lord had opened the door for me, I still had no peace in mind because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I said goodbye to them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession and uses us to sp spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one we are an aroma that brings death, to the other an aroma that brings life. And who is equal to such a task? Unlike so many, we do not peddle the word of God for profit. On the contrary, in Christ we speak before God with sincerity as those sent from God. So we've got um, microphones that aren't working. We've got screens that aren't working. We've got guitars that are playing the wrong chords. Um, musicians who decide to go one way, the worship leader didn't know they were going to go. It's one of those mornings. Now, you may not be feeling it, but when you're in this position, whatever it is, two foot higher, whatever, uh, you feel it and you sense it. And when I'm acutely aware that this whole series of 2 Corinthians has got the undercurrent of warfare, and that we were listening to a long passage of God's word, uh, lacking of taking lots of time and, and great seriousness in preparing that. So we call out, as my wife often says, not today, Satan. And uh, we call out, meaning we are, our battle is not against flesh and blood, as Paul says in another letter, but it's against the powers and principalities. And it's against malevolent spirits of the evil one who would want to distract us, who would want to steal our joy, our focus, etc., etc., etc. So I'm just calling that out for what I think it is. And if that's all foreign to you, if you think, what the heck's this guy coming? I just came to put Lockery for a nice wee weekend. And now I'm hearing all this. We believe that Jesus is Lord. And he calls us into an eternal kingdom, the kingdom of light from the kingdom of darkness. And the ruler of this dark age has got many names, and I'm not going to give him all his names because he doesn't deserve it, but he is against us and he desires to keep us in darkness and he de desires to keep us dim-witted and he desires to keep Jesus in all his glory from us, Jesus who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And so, Father, I pray that by your Spirit that you would open our hearts, open our minds, to the leading of your spirit. With the many words I have, may we hear your word in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. And I need a drink of water. And forgive me for my sniffling as well today. Um, Paul, instead of making a painful visit, as Lachlan read at the beginning of chapter 2,
he made up his mind that he would not make a painful visit. He did that because he did not want to add to the stress of the situation. For seven years, Paul worked with the church at, at Corinth, there or thereabouts. He had founded the church at Corinth. And there was a lot of hassle. There was a lot of... Um, his integrity was being called into question. His calling, his ability to lead his place in the church, all of that was being called into question by a minority, a powerful minority within the church in Corinth. And Paul is standing against that. I've got my doofer here, so I'm going to press. Next slide, please. Thank you. So there you are. He founded the church. And he desires more than anything else, one of the reasons he does not make a painful visit he just desires that they grow up in Jesus from being a baby to be adults, to not drink spiritual milk, but get into the meaty things of God and to be transformed. That is Paul's desire as the founder, apostle, pastor, spiritual leader of this series of churches in that town. That's the bottom line. And I think this is one of the most pastoral letters you'll see of Paul's. Yet he has many which he is, is encouraging and he shares his heart. But I think like any other letter, and I know it's just my opinion, I think you see Paul here. I've got a friend who is a believer in Jesus, but she's a strong feminist. Very strong feminist. And she would say things like, I can't wait to get to heaven. Because one of the things I'm going to do when I get to heaven, I'm going to go up to that Paul and I'm going to give him a piece of my mind. And I know it sounds a bit of joke, but she, there's a bit of truth in that. Because she just found that what Paul says about women or about gender, about sexuality, all of these things, it just made her bulk a little bit. And she was angry at Paul. And she painted Paul as being some sort of academic in an ivory tower who was teaching all of these things, but he was so far away removed from reality. His boots weren't in the ground. That is not the case. End of story. And we will discover more and more what Paul is like through 2 Corinthians as he wrestles with this battle for this church community, for the soul of this church community, for the mind and the heart, and for his position. He's very vulnerable. Last week we were speaking about suffering, and this week we're speaking about conflict. We're looking at how Paul addresses some conflict in the hope of gleaning some ideas there. We don't know really what the conflict is. There's lots of theories about what the conflict is for Paul. Maybe it's the unrepentant deviant, sexual deviant in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, who Paul says, put, I think he was married to his mother-in-law. Is that right? Something like that. And Paul says, put him out of the, the, the church. Um, give him over to Satan in the hope that he will repent and come back to his senses. Maybe that is the, the, the minority are still getting behind that individual that Paul is battling against. Or maybe simply it are these super apostles, which will come up against later on in the letter, who are simply razzmatazz. They've got preacher sneakers. They, have, they speak well. They've got money. They get paid for the services and they are looking on Paul who's got a tent ministry, who asks for nothing, who isn't the best orator, but he is incredible at writing. And, you know, is he baldy? I don't know, whatever. You know, he doesn't look the, the, the best. Not to say that people who are bald don't look good. Forgive me. <laughs> Come to me one day, I'm sure. Um, but 
Paul has got his critics. This letter is written coming to the tail end of that incredible battle. And, um, and although he doesn't pull his punches, and we'll see that, I think it's chapter 10, 11, 12, we'll see how Paul just goes for the jugular with these super apostles. We will see here and in weeks to come, but we'll see here this morning, Paul's heart, Paul's strategy of being a follower of Jesus Christ, even though brothers and sisters have no respect for him, are challenging him. And obviously we can put that into other uh, scenarios that we find that we're in conflict. Can I get the next slide, please? Thank you very much. So we're going to look at it. I'm going to have this Bible open. I'm going to get through it. I'm not going to get through word for word, but I'm going to look at it and look at sections within it and try and follow where Paul is going and what is quite a long passage. And I'm sure many of you have forgotten what um, one, uh, 2 Corinthians 1.12 starts at, but we're going to go around about there. And those are up there for you to look at. Hopefully not get distracted by, but hopefully to help you. Here's his strategy and here's his example to us among other things, Paul was being considered or called double-minded. He was being accused. How can an apostle dither? You say you're going to come and visit and then you don't. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Don't say you're going to do something and then you don't. How are we to respect you if we can't trust your word? That's what's going on here. And that's that whole bit down there um, that when he planned to visit and did we make plans in worldly ways? No. And then he just goes into all about your word, yes and yes and no and no and how he brought the gospel to you and all of that. You are double-minded, Paul. You are not an apostle of us. We want someone who looks better, speaks better and receives because it's good to receive. And so we're calling your apostleship into question. This is how he approaches, and he does it in various ways, but how, this is how he approaches, as he is following in the dust of his rabbi Jesus, the Jesus way. First one is, he, sought, he seeks to act in holiness and sincerity. Verse 12, holiness and sincerity are from God. We will get criticized left, right, and center. We will be in a position of conflict Many of you, like me this week, have been in a position of conflict and battled. And Paul is saying here, in this place where we are at loggerheads, I will come at it with all sincerity and in holiness set apart. Not holy Joe, not saying one thing and doing another, not thus saith the Lord after every single sentence to try and justify your words and your actions but by holiness and patience and long-suffering and all of those fruits of the Spirit that come when you walk with Jesus. Paul says this right at the beginning, I came to you in this conflict and sincerity and holiness. And at some point we are going to be called into question and let's not be judged for doing what God has called us to. Let's walk in holiness and, and not be criticized for that. Let's be sincere in what we say or do and let's not be criticized for that. They can criticize us for all sorts of things, but those things let us not be criticized for. He also says in verse 13, for we do not write you anything you cannot read or understand. In other words, he communicated well. 
And, and you know what it's like when you're in a battle? You, I sometimes see this, and I was like this as well, that when you're in a debate, a fight with someone, for me, I start to talk more posh. Is that right? Maybe not anymore. But I used to, because I tried to, I need to sound as if I know what I'm talking about here. And then I started to speak less Glaswegian and more like the Queen. <coughs> and it's not, it's not about that. It's when you're in those situations of conflict, like your yes be yes and your no be no. Communicate truth. Even if it's failings. Much like at the last church meeting, bar one, I stood amongst the church family and says, I was completely wrong about getting all these musical instruments and starting all this ministry. It turns out it was just my good idea and it was not of the Lord, so I apologize. That's good, I believe that's good communication. It's, whole, it's honesty, it's sincerity. It's not trying to say, well, such and such let me down, etc. Don't squirm out with your words. Communicate well, even if it's not appreciated, even if other people would consider that not to be true you are in sincerity and in holiness it will be because you're following in the dust of your rabbi Jesus so don't hide behind good deeds don't hide your good deeds behind bad words practice what you preach and don't hide bad deeds behind embellished rhetoric by trying to speak like the queen and all of that type of thing he focused on Jesus he says, for no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Jesus. Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega. We know that. That is one of his names. And he's the Alpha and Omega of all of God's good intentions and plans. God has got no other plans except through the Word of God. The Alpha and the Omega, his Son. So you can't go wrong if you seek to bring all you do all you say and all you are at the feet of Jesus. Focus on Jesus. Even when the pressure is on and the chips are down and you feel your hackles getting up, focus on Jesus. Communicate well. Be holy. In verse 22, we read that he is confident about his future. Because God, he's anointed us, verse 21, and he has set a seal of ownership on us and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. God has started. We are called to abide, to be a part of Jesus, to remain with Jesus, to follow Jesus, to abandon everything to Jesus, especially when we don't know it, uh, what's happening. And he will bring that thing to completion. How many of us here have seen healings, dramatic healings, where people have received sight or the ability to walk or being able to speak again? Who, very physical things. Is there anyone? Please let me see your hands. It might only be... Great. Wonderful. And who's been involved in scenarios where you've seen people dramatically healed that you can't explain? It has to be called a miracle. Who's been involved in those experiences as well? Do you know that is just a fraction of what it will be like in God's heaven, in the new earth. It's a deposit. Yeah, we are overflow with the Holy Spirit. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. But what we see now is just a bit. And I believe, and I said that, I don't want to sleepwalk into 2024. I want to wake up in certain areas of my life where I'm just coasting because I desire so much to see more of what God is doing in my life and in your life and in this community and beyond. 
Paul is confident. He might not see it just now. It might look as if um, the, the boss burst, to use a wee phrase, and, and all of that. But he's still confident in this part, part of uh, conflict that God is in control. He's always been faithful. And finally, another little strategy, an example to us is this. He encourages us to happily serve. Serve other people's joy. Verse 24, he says. Don't just work through or for others, but rather in Jesus and his church, work with others and work for their benefit and for their good. Do all for their joy. That's a hard thing to do because we're naturally quite centered on ourselves. Give generously if you have been given finances from the Lord. Give. Tithing is an Old Testament uh, command. How much more people of grace who have received a deposit of the Holy Spirit and God will never leave us, how much more should we be abandoning even our giftings to God? And this is not some sort of spin for my salary or anything like that at all. But how much more should we give our, our time? and our hearts, and our desires. Give to others, give to the Lord. See what he would do with that. Because I'm guaranteed that if you try and hold on to it, you'll lose it. So th th these from that little section at the beginning of Paul's change of plans where he's accused of being dithering and he's accused of so much more, he explains of how he responds in that conflict for us. He explains so that we may have some sort of example and know that we're not in it alone. Next slide, please. Because he says this. What have I written up there? Let me read that again. Satan is scheming. If you forgive anyone, I also forgive them. And what I have forgiven, if there is anything to forgive, I have forgiven them in the sight of Christ for your sake. He's, he's, he's done something counter-cultural. And he says this in order that Satan might not outwith us. Unforgiveness is a scheme of the kingdom of darkness, not the kingdom of light for we are not unaware of his schemes. And this whole section from uh, verse 5 in chapter 2 down to the end, Paul warns us of the seed of spiritual warfare in our basic relationships. I ain't talking about the exorcist, omen, whatever classic horror movies where you see the supernatural. I'm not saying those things do not happen, but Hollywood have got a, uh, that genre of films within Hollywood is to make us scared and they'll do anything because it's all about money at the box office. More often or not, the enemy will come in our thoughts and he'll plant an idea. Is that not what he did with Eve? Did God really say you must not eat from the, the tree of good and, good and evil? Is that right? Did God really not say that? It's an idea that Satan simply came and planted in Eve's mind. And if it's successful in the wonderful creation of Eden, 
where they walked in the, the cool of the night with, with the Lord, the cool night of the Lord, how much more for us when we are in this hundred mile an hour, 24 hour news feed, we're getting bombarded left, right and centre, how much more now will an idea be planted by a scheme of the evil one to turn us away from the Lord and to put us further, further, further in the mire? Ideas all over the place. Our children are being bombarded with ideas of identity. We've got confused children age five. It's, it's ideas, ideas, ideas. And Paul is saying, we are not stupid. We know what he is up to. He exploits each situation to his own disruptive ends. Even if the church has already acted against the offence, even if you've already forgiven, don't put it by him to come along because something else has happened that makes you doubt whether that person deserves forgiveness and deserves your grace and all of that. Don't put it by the evil one to whisper such things into your ears to catch you off guard, to trip you up. Paul says enough is enough. And remember, this is someone who has acted and has attacked Paul. Paul has forgiven him, says in verse 10. If you forgive anyone, I also forgive and then in a sort of nonchalant way, he says, and what I have forgiven, if there is anything to forgive, is playing it down in many ways. I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake. See, his purposes of forgiven intentionally, not just as a great idea, in the, in, in the face of Christ, because my Savior is with me, and for your sake, I'm forgiven. Even though I've been wronged, I will forgive. That is completely countercultural. It's upside down kingdom and it's a challenge to us. Such sacrificial selflessness is a key antidote to Satan who seeks to divide us. Paul, his approach was to encourage forgiveness and reconciliation. Two very powerful weapons. Forgiveness. You have done wrong to me. You have done serious wrongs to me. If you've done it online, it will be there forever. And everyone thinks this of me, and it's a lie. But because I have been forgiven, I will forgive. And actually, I won't just do it because it's a great idea. I've brought this to the feet of Jesus, and he's worked in my heart, and I truly forgive and I desire your joy, and I desire your reconciliation with the people of God, with God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That is powerful. The evil one quakes at that. How many of you have been involved in a situation where you felt led and you've done it, and it's been hard? This is not a boast. This is just the reality. How many of you have done that? Where you have been smited and it's bang out of order, but you've responded to the word of God and the lead of the Holy Spirit and you've forgiven and you're continuing to forgive. Every now and then, the, uh, the person does something wrong to you again and it's a battle once again because the idea comes in. Keep bringing it to the cross. Repentance, forgiveness and reconciliation. There's danger here as well if the church is too severe. The person stumbles and falls and there's no reconciliation. If the person is discouraged so much and therefore there's disunity in the church. So we need to watch that in discipline, 
we're not whipping people all the time. But on the other hand, we need to watch that we're not so liberally minded that we would just say, oh, grace, grace, and grace. Because there's a fine balance between grace and truth, and it needs to be balanced. These are powerful things with God's people. And verse 9 tells us what's at stake. The reason I wrote to you was to see if you would stand the test and the obedience and everything. Paul was testing them to see if they were serious and following the Jesus way, which was an idea. And the challenge is with us. I hope you're being challenged in a situation you're going through. I hope there's something in your mind that's even burning your heart and there's anxiety. I hope all of that, because therefore I think you're seriously engaging God's word. I hope you're not numb to this. I hope you're not, oh, I, I, I don't have anything against anyone because I really would struggle to believe that. It may even be a politician or a political party or a way. It might be something happening in the world. Bring that, don't burn with hatred and anger. Bring it to the Lord in prayer. And finally, and I don't know if I put a slide up for finally, I have. And here's this last section. Paul then goes on to say how he, he was desperate to hear from Titus what the church were like. And so he went to Troas, couldn't find them. But then in Macedonia, he eventually finds them. And that's where he wrote this letter. That's definitely where he wrote this letter in Macedonia. When he heard what was happening, and, and this is where the pastoral letter comes, comes out from Paul. And that's where we're at, just at this wee bit. As Paul then goes and does something, it's like, it's like he's, um, and I'm going to finish this, it's like he, he suddenly takes an energy drink or something like that. He's just been going on, and then all of a sudden, we've got these four or five or six verses, whatever it is, that's just jam-packed with exciting things. But as I just unpack a couple before I finish, I want to say this. Here's the reality for the vast majority of us here. We're in at the deep end. We've got broken relationships. We've got fights all over the place. Battles, some of them we feel we need to win. But we've decided we're going to follow Jesus and we're going to bring kingdom principles into those. And so therefore, we're going to live in holiness and sincerity. We're going to be upfront about what God is doing. We're going to be focused on Jesus. We're going to trust that God got our yesterday, today, and our tomorrow. And what we're doing is for God's glory and for others' joy. So we're engaged in that battle. Now the world, our culture, and the super apostles and the people at Corinthians valued power, success, and prestige. Paul comes along and he's following a different way. He's following the Jesus way and it's one of service and sacrifice. That's what he does. And then he speaks about how he lives his life or how we should live our lives. The reality and how we are amongst people and how we use God's word. On the one hand, he's quite triumphalistic and his confidence that God would use him. Remember, he's got super apostles and now Paul says, I know who's called me. I know who's behind me and I know who goes before me to left, to right, above, below, all of that. I know that. And he's tri triumphalistic and he gives this image of a Romans and how they would come back after a, a battle and they would drag behind them as a show of power, slaves, booty, to show everyone I'm triumphalistic. And Paul uses that for Jesus. 
And in effect, he says, I belong to Jesus. He's triumphed over me. He's defeated the power of evil and he's also brought me to my knees to recognize that he is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. So he's quite triumphalistic about he's captured by Jesus. And then on the other hand, Paul's ministry, though triumphalistic, it's always a serious, very serious. And he says this in verse 15 and verse 16. For we are to God the aroma of Christ, the smell of Christ among those who are being saved and the smell of death. Have I got that right? Saved. Sorry. For we are to God the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one we are the smell of death, to the other the fragrance of life. And who is equal to this task? You and I are plan A, there is no plan B. I've said this many times. And we are an aroma as we go about our daily lives, as we lead people, as we are led by people, as we live in our communities, as we serve in our communities, we are the aroma of Christ. Some people will reject that. They will look at what we stand for and they will say we are exclusive, we are backwards and all sorts. We will be an offence to people. That's the aroma of death that Paul is talking about as he's talking about his ministry. But there will be many others because God goes before us. We will be the aroma of life. Do you, you get that? That is who we are. Paul is stating that here. And then he goes on to say, and who is worthy of this task? And the truth is no one. Only he is worthy. Jesus is worthy. But we've been chosen and called for that task. He is the apostle to the Gentiles who founded, loved, and desired this church to grow into spiritual maturity is confident of that also. In the face of conflict, he still stands for that and it's an incredible picture for us um, to leave with. Our culture va values strength, but we are called to be weak. And it, it values success we are called to fail in many ways. But when we are sent out in the power of the Holy Spirit, God goes before us and there will be people here. We don't do it for money, as Paul says. We don't peddle scriptures, but we bring people to the truth. In a conflict situation, with joy, with all sincerity and holiness, knowing that God is with us, confident of the future, I think that's incredible myself. Let's pause, pray, we're going, to, we're going to finish with a song that we butchered at the beginning. <laughs> um, Father, in your mercies, hear our prayers. Thank you for your word that's powerful, it's exciting, and we understand it more, we get it. And although there's lots of mystery and we don't get it, we know that in these last days you have spoken to us through your Son, who is the heir of all things and through whom the whole universe is made. So we know your Son, Jesus. We know his love. We know the love that can never fail. We know the, the power and the companionship and the comfort of your spirit. And we know, Father, that you are the good, good Father. Help us in these conflict issues that we are in that we would abandon to the way of Jesus when we don't understand it as an act of sacrifice, of weakness, but of honesty and truth and obedience to you. Lord, that we would not sleepwalk any further, but that we would come awake to what you're doing 
May our marriages grow stronger. May our children know who they are. Father, may we be confident of what you've called us to. May we discern your voice and know your voice. And Lord, I pray that more than anything, we just know more of your love. I want to know that your love and the fullness of it and experience it and be transformed by it and be your man in this place and going to others as an ambassador, calling them to repentance and faith in Christ. For your glory, in the name of Christ, amen. Amen.